Welcome to a public lecture podcast from the University of Bath. In this showcase lecture, Professor Jane Miller highlights research in action. Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, members of council, colleagues, friends. Um, my name is Jane Miller. I'm President Chancellor for Research here at the University. I'm also Director of the Knowledge Transfer Account. So it's my great pleasure to welcome you to this showcase lecture, Research in Action which is going to be talking about three of the projects that um, have been part of our knowledge transfer account. So our aim today is to provide you with an overview of the work that we've been carrying out through that knowledge transfer account, and then, as I say, to present these three selected um, projects, which we've chosen to give a flavour of the different types of things that we've done with the knowledge transfer account. Let me just say a brief word about that knowledge transfer account and my own involvement in it. Um, The overall knowledge transfer programme was set up by the Engineering and Physical Sciences Research Council in 2009 when they invited bids from universities to put forward innovative and imaginative ideas for ways to maximise the impact of research that they'd funded. And that could be research going back a couple of decades um, at least. Um, And they were very non-prescriptive in what they were looking for. They were looking for ideas and approaches that would take their funded research out of universities and into the world in some way. Now, this, of course, was an offer very much to Bath's interests and strengths. Um, Our mission has always been to have focused research excellence, but also impact with that research, so to use our research to make a difference. So we were immediately responsive to this call for proposals, and our bid was largely developed by Dr John Hunt from the Research Development and Support Office, working with myself and the deans. And we were only one of 12 successful bids across the country, so we did very well to be selected as one of these um, um, projects. And um, uh, thanks to John for his work in putting it together. One of the first smart things we did, then, was to appoint Denise Cook, Dr Denise Cook, to be the manager of the KTA. Denise is going to talk in a minute. And over the past three years that the project's been running, we've developed a vibrant, a very wide-ranging portfolio of activities. It's been an interesting, varied and valuable experience for us. I've certainly learned a lot, and I think everyone involved in it has. Um, And I'm sure that the challenges and the rewards of research and action will come across in the presentations we're going to hear today. We've got four excellent speakers. And they're going to present for about 10 to 12 minutes each. And only that, I'll be sitting in the front, (laughs) watching carefully that they don't overrun. Um, I'll introduce each of them in turn. um, And at the end of that, we'll hear from each presentation, one after the other. And we'll have the questions and discussion and everything all together at the end. So if you could hold your thoughts and comments and so on until we get to the end so that we can um, take all our comments together. So the first speaker I want to introduce is Dr. Denise Cook, who is the um, KTA Project uh, manager. Um, Denise has a BSc in analytical science from Dublin City University and a PhD in biochemistry from the University of Wales. Her academic career has involved interdisciplinary postdoctoral positions in computer science and chemical engineering. She then moved into university administration and then business administration where she ran a small software house. She joined the university in February 2009 to work in our consultancy service and has been managing the KTA since we set it up in the autumn of 2009. So, Denise, if I can ask you to come forward. Hello. Yes, as 
of Jane says, this £3.4 million grant was given to the university in order for us to get our research results out into business. And, um, you know, we're building on excellent collaborative work that we already do, but we wanted to do more of it. And we wanted to raise awareness of the benefits of doing this type of activity in order to enthuse other academics to get involved. So Bath's KTA has three aims. First one is around a culture change. Um, quite a challenge, really, any organisational change is. And we decided to do it across the university as a whole and not just concentrate on the ten departments that have received EPS or C funding. The second was to increase the number of organisations that are taking up and benefiting from the research we do. And finally, to capture and showcase the, the, the benefits that we're receiving. So in order to embed the culture, one of the first things we did was set up a KT forum. We invited representatives from across the university to come together and to talk about what knowledge transfer means at Bath. We looked at whether there was reward and recognition in place, and we helped to write guidelines for academics who are going for promotion. We also looked at um, academics who do this activity and we wrote case histories about them and why they do it, what benefits they receive and to share across the university. This forum was greatly strengthened when the Vice-Chancellor in October 2010, you can see in the photo, appointed uh, departmental knowledge transfer champions. The role of these individuals was to enthuse their colleagues to engage in knowledge transfer. And what helped to do that was they had access to um, a nice pot of money, £160,000, in order to help fund activities that would build new collaborative relationships. Managed to award over 50 um, activities, and these have included things like showcasing events here at Bath or in London, where we've shown our research to potential end users. We've paid for travel to visit companies, for mentors to broker relationships, and website design to help get our research out to a broader audience. And this has had really good results. We've interacted with over 200 external organisations, and we've applied for uh, follow-on funding. And we know that at least one has been successful so far, and it was for £350,000. So had a really good t return on investment, a lot more people engaging. We appointed a filmmaker, and he's been making films to try and demystify the whole area of impact, uh, because we're getting different definitions from different bodies. And we just wanted to try and help academics understand what it's all about and why it's important to the university. We've also done a, a video on um, working with the media, because we want to try and encourage academics to get their research out there, to disseminate it widely, because you can't get potential collaborators if nobody knows what we're doing. We've been running an annual survey on attitudes to knowledge transfer right from the beginning in October 2009. And there's a real shift. We can really see now that there's a greater understanding about what knowledge transfer means. In fact, there's been a shift to using the term knowledge exchange because people are realizing that it's, it's a two-way process and that there are benefits not just for the external organization but for Bath as well. The survey is also showing that people understand how important impact is to the university. And we're seeing as well that the profile of the knowledge transfer champions is really high within the departments. We've been running a range of workshops in order to help 
scale up our academics in dealing with external organisations. This is a workshop here that we ran last year on engaging with policymakers. We've also run events on um, communicating your research to business, on developing CPD courses, um, and for effective networking. And we've run some lunchtime seminars on a monthly basis, and these have been really useful, and we have used them as a uh, research support office to try and highlight academics exactly what support we have available at the university to help them do this type of work. So, getting the research adopted, this has been the main bulk of the work. This is where most of the funding has been concentrated. We thought initially we'd fund about 10 to 20 projects, but we've had a really good response, and we have funded 36 projects in total. Just at some of the companies there, I mean, there's over 30, you can fit them all on the slide. And um, we've had a, 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 the projects have ranged from ac across the university, so we've 10, 10 departments involved. Projects range in length from three months to two years, and they range in the impact that they're trying to deliver. It's not just economic impact we're looking at, some of them have social, environmental, and policy impacts as well. We three types of award. First one is fellowships, which mainly are secondments in, into the university or out. And uh, Professor Pete Walker will be talking about uh, this secondment in from BLE later on. We've also funded proof of concepts. And this is more where we've got a technology that we want to develop to get it to a stage that maybe industry are interested, or projects where we've uh, worked with schools, which Dr. Dan Eisland-Tenfraser will be talking about later. And the majority of our funding went into partnership development awards. And this is where the, the projects were match funded by industry, really showed their commitment to adopting the results. And these were, in the economic climate that we've had, these were really surprising that we got such a response for these projects. We actually got an um, investment of 2.4 million, and that has led to follow-on funding of 3.7 million. So it's been a really good way of building relationships and sustaining those relationships. So in terms of the results we're getting out of the projects, they're all um, they're looking really good. We've got, with Vodafone, they're using a toolkit that we've developed in their research and development. And the Met Office are using some software we've developed. It's helping them to predict uh, surface temperatures. So they can now advise councils on what roads to grit much more effectively than they could before. And you'll be hearing more about the, the other projects tools. And finally, our third aim about capturing and celebrating. We've been running an annual showcase dinner. Um, so we can uh, show our collaborators what we've been doing and we give awards at this as well. And uh, we've been doing that in the pump rooms, and this year we're, we're going to be running it in the assembly rooms in Bath in September. We'll also be producing annual newsletters. There should be copies available if you want to have a look at those. And we've been writing up case studies on the projects as they've finished, and this is feeding in and supporting our marketing strategy at the university. And we've also been producing some videos, because we think that's a really nice way of disseminating the work we've done. Um, they're available on our website and on the KTA website, and I've also uploaded them to the YouTube channel. And we'll be showing some of them later for, for those of you uh, who are having tea in the Wessex restaurant. And um, 
probably way ahead by 10 minutes. And thank you very much for listening, and uh, I'll answer any questions later. Thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, so that gives a, 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 a bit of an overview of the aims of the KGA and the different, the, the range of activity, I mean, quite an extensive range of activity. So our first speaker to talk about one of the projects in particular is Professor Rob Scott, uh, who is Professor of Biology in the Department of Biology and Biochemistry. He's also chair of the Bath Science Cafe, which is a regular group that gets out into the city to talk about science from the university, a director of Secure Harvards Limited, and chair of the International Centre for Underutilised Crops. Rod's been here at the university since January 1998, when he joined us from the University of Leicester. His main interest is translating fundamental research into biotech applications, and this is focused on two main areas, increasing yield in crop species through genetic manipulation of seed development, and secondly, exploiting microalgae for biofuel and pigment production, as well as for improved wastewater cleaning, and that's precisely what his project's been about, so Rod, please come further. Okay, well, thank you very much, Jane. Didn't recognise the person who was describing the um, So, this is my uh, project. What I'm going to tell you about is um, streaming uh, waste into, into products. Um, so this is uh, a collaborative project between uh, the University of Bath and a small startup company called uh, Aragreen Limited. Uh, the director is uh, Jaron Vaughan. Um, the Bath team consists of myself, uh, Tom Arnott from chemical engineering, uh, Matt Davidson from chemistry, and we have uh, very welcome help from Miles Davis, who's uh, from the KCP office. So that actually uh, cuts across three departments and two faculties. And uh, there's been some interesting um, consequences of that, which we might discuss later if there are questions. The KCA Fellows, very lucky to have two talented uh, uh, PhDs, uh, Philip Mozenega uh, and Daniel Murray, who've been <coughs> extremely flexible in what they're prepared to, uh, to take on. This is a, a, quite a challenging project. And we also collaborate with Welsh Water. Um, People and industry produce a great deal of, uh, of wastewater, uh, which needs to be uh, treated uh, before it's discharged uh, into mostly rivers. And one of the major problems with that, that the water utility companies face when they have to do that treatment is the removal to uh, prescribed levels of, of nitrates and phosphates. Um, there's really very strict legislation as to the maximum limits that are allowed. So that's a serious problem for them. Um, a dramatic illustration of what can happen if those nitrates and phosphates are not removed are these algal blooms. So there's a severe environmental cost uh, associated with failure to, to comply. Uh, this graph shows the sort of range of wastewater uh, concentrations of uh, nitrates and phosphates that you find across the world. So these are FAO uh, figures. And these are the uh, legal limits within the European Union that uh, wastewater treatment companies have to, um, have to meet. And so these are very stringent already, and they will get even more stringent as we become more and more concerned about the environment. 
And so it's technically challenging and expensive for water utility companies to deal with this. Fortunately, uh, nitrates and phosphates are one of the very uh, few inputs that you need to grow uh, microalgae. Uh, so along with CO2 and water and light, um, N and P are a major uh, feedstock. And so the, the basis of our project is to um, use various free or uh, minimally expensive uh, inputs uh, to grow microalgae in a closed photobioreactor uh, system. So those inputs uh, are CO2, which of course is extremely abundant from industrial processes, and NNP from wastewater, but also from anaerobic digestion, which is another process associated with uh, the wastewater treatment uh, system. And this supplies um, very high levels of almost pure ammonia, which algae uh, uh, thrive on. So a number of free uh, inputs. Light is a bit more problematic. Uh, it's reasonably okay today, but uh, if you wanted to grow microalgae in a, in a photobioreactor in this country um, in the depths of winter, then you need to give supplementary light, and that does impose a cost on the system. So one of our challenges is to reduce the amount of uh, uh, energy that's required to supply that light. Now, on the output side, um, depending on the species of algae that you grow in your photobioreactor, you can make a number of different uh, saleable products, um, including uh, pigments for using um, the uh, uh, aquaculture industry, uh, for example, to colour the flesh of salmon and, and trout and shrimps, a uh, pigment called astaxanthin. Other algae are efficient at uh, producing uh, protein that can be included in, in, in feed for animals. And further out... Uh, a little bit more difficult to achieve is, is liquid fuels, uh, such as biodiesel. Uh, the issues here are the very low cost of fossil fuels make uh, this uh, really quite difficult to achieve uh, economically uh, currently. The other product, of course, of interest to the water utility companies is polished wastewater. So our uh, project uh, objectives were to establish wastewater polishing uh, efficient algae that also produce a saleable biomass. Uh, you need to have two sides of the equation for it to be uh, uh, useful. Um, establish various technologies to uh, reduce input costs uh, and evaluate algae at a pilot scale plant uh, which was to be newly built uh, within this project. And also to develop uh, harvesting methods um, to recover the biomass and uh, produce algae-free uh, water suitable for the discharge. Uh, and the harvesting side is particularly challenging because even under the best conditions, the density of algal cells that you can achieve in a culture is relatively low. Um, so you have to remove a great deal of water to obtain your biomass. And removing that water imposes a cost because you're going to need to use energy. So we're looking at various low energy uh, solutions for that. Um, we've established uh, in the laboratory uh, initially that um, the microalgae that we're uh, interested in from a, uh, a saleable biomass perspective are also good at removing nitrates and phosphates from wastewater. Um, in growing in wastewater, we've also shown that uh, uh, 
the levels of biomass are very acceptable, particularly when you uh, add in the centrate from anaerobic digestion with, with the high levels of ammonia. So that is established. On the lighting side, uh, I think there's a big opportunity here um, to make the system uh, more efficient and cost-effective. Only around 45% of white light is used in photosynthesis. So 55% that you'd be putting in if you were using white light illumination is just a waste of your money. Um, so with Professor Wang in um, electronic and electrical engineering, we're investigating the use of uh, LEDs, which can supply the, wave, the two wavelengths of light, which can keep chlorophyll used in photosynthesis fully occupied. Um, so you can give light in the blue and in the red, which fits very neatly the absorbance uh, curve for, for chlorophyll. And that can reduce your costs uh, very markedly um, in the region of 50 to 90% uh, on energy costs. Um, now, because LEDs are digital devices, uh, you can also uh, do things with them that you can't do with other kinds of lighting. For example, you can flash or pulse them very rapidly. And for reasons that I don't have time to go into, that means that photosynthesis can be made much more efficient. It essentially allows you to put more light in without damaging the photosystems. So you can achieve uh, lower input costs and, and, and larger uh, biomass accumulation. And also you can achieve uh, incremental light intensity, which means that at the beginning of a culture, when the density of cells is quite low, you can put in a, a lower amount of light, and then you can ramp that up as the culture becomes more dense. And that, again, saves you uh, on energy costs. Um, and alongside that, we're looking at technologies that can sense the density of the culture so that you can, in an automated way, ramp up the light intensity. <laughs> Am I doing <laughs> A couple more minutes. <laughs> that's, that's all the technical stuff out of the way, isn't it? Um, so, as I mentioned, we, um, in this project, needed to establish a, a pilot-scale plan. Um, this is up in... Uh, uh, the Forest of Dean, next to the River Wye, uh, adjacent to Welsh Water Treatment Works at Lidbrook, and we have a pipe, or two pipes, one bringing wastewater into our site, and another one returning treated wastewater uh, to the head of the works, as it's called. Um, it's fairly unlikely beginnings for this uh, pilot plant. This is what we were faced with when we started. Um, what we wanted to insert into uh, essentially a derelict industrial site uh, was this system various um, photobioreactors the largest of which is a 4 cubic meter uh, capacity uh, uh, PBR and associated uh, machinery uh, for harvesting for example so a membrane based system which Tom Arnott is an expert in and a low energy centrifuge we wanted to see whether you needed one or both of these systems to uh, uh, generate, um, well, to harvest biomass and generate uh, dischargeable water. And there's various other systems in there. Uh, we started work on this in, in June last year, and the site was opened on a very nice day in, in mid-August, mid where we all met up with uh, representatives of Welsh Water and others. Um, 
So this, the site uh, is established. And just leads me to summarize, before Jane comes over and drags me off. Um, we've laid the foundations in the lab, um, at, at lab scale, and transferred uh, some of this knowledge to these larger PBRs on site. Uh, we think we have uh, the only integrated uh, PBR and wastewater processing facility in the UK. And I hope no one will contradict me. Um, what we need to do is transfer more knowledge. Um, we're using fluorescent lighting currently on the PBRs. If we want to use LEDs uh, with pulsing and, and ILI. And if we do well, then we hope to commence uh, the sale of a certain kind of algal biomass which if anyone knows what that is behind it, they'll, they'll understand what the species is. So, thanks for your attention. Thanks very much, Rob. And I think one of the things that that project illustrates is the um, uh, multidisciplinary research that underpins that work. So it's Rob working with colleagues from other departments as well to um, carry out that research. Um, our next speaker is Dr. Danai Stanton-Fraser, who's a reader in psychology and associate dean for research in the Faculty of Humanities and Social Sciences. Um, Dan and I established and lead to create research group establishing, evaluating novel technologies and studying their effects on collaborative learning. Um, Dan is very interdisciplinary as an academic as well. Um, her main research interests are in the design and evaluation of mobile and ubiquitous technologies for learning, spatial cognition, navigation in real and virtual environments, and the evaluation of mobile, wearable, and tangible technologies. And her KTA project was about translating that research into science teaching in schools. Dana. We're filming, by the way, which is why we keep handing you things over. <laughs> I'm Dana Stanton Fraser, and as Jane said, I'm lead in a lab called the Create Lab. Um, and this work was carried out. Um, thank you very much. This work was carried out uh, by myself, uh, Chris Bevan, who worked on the project, on the KT project. Suzanne Martin, who's a PhD student in the lab, and importantly, we're working in collaboration with David Crellin, who runs an education sensor company uh, based in Bath. It's a small company, but they distribute sensors for education um, uh, within this country and abroad. So, um, as a bit of background to the project, um, as Joe said, we explore how mobile technologies, um, such as data loggers, so um, on the left you can see an example, it's an educational sensor, um, sensing um, equipment, uh, that schools use, um, but we also explore the use of digital cameras and mobile phones um, in uh, educational environments, and how these can be used particularly in promoting very hands-on inquiry. So a scientific inquiry approach is very hands-on, so children go out and take the active role of scientists collecting their own data, and particularly important is that this data is personalised and that it's contextual, they're collecting it in an environment uh, themselves and understanding that environment when they collect the data. Where we come in with this research, we've been doing, we've done about 10 years of research looking at how mobile technologies can aid science learning. And just as a very brief 
uh, sort of background for you. The context that we're working in is that the number of students taking science at GCSE and A-level actually is steadily falling. There's a lot of debate about how to best inspire students to take science. And it's not only so that we have scientists in the UK, so this is UK context I'm talking about, but also a scientifically informed public. And in 2005, who is now at the ESRC, ourselves wrote a review um, around this area, looking at government policy, but also looking at research that was going on. The, very briefly, what we find is that between 9 and 14, this disengagement um, comes about, and there's lots of theories put forward for that, including the move from primary school to secondary school, where you go from a more open curricula to something that's very sort of five minute, 45 minute based lessons. Um, a whole number of people who have been doing research looking at how you can use, carry out more hands-on approaches to science in order to keep that engagement um, within that age range. And we've been working in the area of doing that, but using technologies. So while we're finding lots of research evidence, and I know we've got to give you a little flavour of this today, but there's a lot of research evidence as to why um, we might use technologies uh, in this area, what you actually find is that there's a big gap between the research that's being carried out that's finding effects for motivation and learning um, and actually what's happening in the classrooms uh, where teachers are actually not using these technologies. And uh, BECTER, which was the agency for technology, uh, the government agency for uh, technology in the UK, before it was disestablished, as it was a quango, um, had written a number of reports documenting this gap. Uh, meanwhile, we in the Create Lab um, have carried out a number of projects, and I'm just going to give you a flavour of one of them, just so you can see how we run into our knowledge uh, transfer knowledge exchange project. Um, this was an EPSRC TSB-funded um, project called Participate uh, with the University of Nottingham, and a number of, um, we tend to work with the industrial partners in most of our projects, and at BT, Microsoft, BBC, Glass Theory, who are a performance arts company, um, and ScienceScope, the educational science company talking about. And what we were exploring was how we could use new and emerging technologies to encourage engagement, particularly around environmental issues. And we at Bath led the work um, engaging with schools, looking at how we could build up pictures of, um, uh, by children doing trips from school, um, home to school, taking sensors with them, developing maps of carbon monoxide use, um, light levels, moisture. You can, you can actually um, almost sense anything you want with these sensors, about 50 different sensors, um, and building up maps of their environments that they can share across other schools and sort of building up large maps of the country. So they explore with these sensors, and then the sensor data that they get is mapped in real time on Google Earth. And it can also add images um, and videos to that. And this gives children a really personalised experience collecting their own data but it also um, gives contextual, um, a contextual nature to their data in that they are um, finding out as they move through the environment their readings at the same time, and also they can bring us immediately up in Google Earth and see trails um, as they wander through, and they can share and compare these with others. So we've developed um, uh, a number of theories around the use of personal and contextual data and a number of methods that we could use with schools in order to um, aid their science learning, motivation and learning science. And what we wanted to do in the KT was um, most of these projects, you work very, very 
in depth with a couple of schools. It tends to be that you engage with a couple of schools, and these are enthusiastic teachers that come forward. And what we wanted to do through the KT project was actually um, get our results out to more science teachers, but actually technicians and um, teachers in training. So we wanted to engage directly with teachers, and we also wanted to start to collect a body of data um, that would help us to um, push forward our agenda in terms of policy um, and um, talking to government about the effects of uh, technology in uh, aiding learning motivation in school science. So we developed an interactive workshop as part of the KT project. So the KT project ran for a year within our, um, our ongoing research. And um, we developed an interactive workshop program. What we wanted to do was um, have something where we fed some of our um, methodologies to the teacher, but we also really engaged them in the use of the technology. Um, and so we developed uh, with science scopes and demonstrations based on their curricula, uh, so things like candle in a box, but also some uh, activities where they could go out and sense the environment like the children would do, uh, looking, for example, at some electrosmog number of mobile phones being used in the area, and then look at how they could very easily, in real time, plot this in Google App. Um, we had a project website and promotional materials, and we um, put out a call to schools, and we engage with schools we haven't worked with before. So we have a small network of schools, obviously, that we work with. We wanted to get out to other schools. Um, we reached 84 uh, teachers, <coughs> as the science teachers, at 10 secondary schools in the Bath and Bristol area, and 52 um, PGCE students through these workshops. Um, so they actually, I say they were science teachers, but actually we had a few geography teachers come along, and also some um, primary school teachers from feeder schools. Um, as part of the KT, we also um, uh, carried out some media activities in order to get our work out there as well. We attended VET, had a standard VET, which is the British Education Trade Show. We went to Learning Without Frontiers, which is more mobile and pervasive technologies, and Bath Taps into Science, which we'll be doing um, next week as well. And uh, we wrote a press article to go out to all schools in the UK. The policy engagement wasn't so easy. Um, at the time of um, submitting the KT project, uh, the plan was um, to work through Vector, which was um, the uh, body that I mentioned earlier, which um, during the uh, 2010 was disestablished as it was a quango, and I was on the research advisory group of that, and people were moving jobs at this time. So it was a difficult political situation, and this is one of the lessons that you learn, that it's quite hard at those stages to get into the policy environment. The project didn't end there, and obviously we carry on to do the research. We've now established that most of the people moved across to the Department of Education, and actually at the end of this month we're um, part of a workshop looking at how education works with industry and academia. So we're doing some work, but that will be ongoing work. Some of the immediate impacts of um, the KT project in particular, um, that um, following up on workshops, um, we had a number of heads of science who came to us and very um, enthusiastic to start integrating the technologies and the methodologies we were using um, into their science curriculum. So we've been working closely with uh, two schools in particular, one in Bristol and one just outside Bath. Um, and one of my PhD students, Susie, has been in it to every science lesson uh, last semester uh, with working with the science teacher. And that's quite hard, actually, to engage uh, in that way and actually become part of their science lessons. And that will 
engage the school but also enable us to carry out research evaluation at the same time. Um, another of um, other immediate impacts, so these are the immediate ones, um, the Create Lab and uh, ScienceScope, the industrial partner, we have, through the project, we carried out questionnaires and interviews with the teachers and we established some of the barriers um, to using the software and hardware. And we've recently received an INET um, project, which is more funding to actually do the technical work with, the, uh, with ScienceScope and adapt their technology to be much more quickly appropriated in the classroom. The former chair of governors of one of the schools that we visited, um, was so enthusiastic about the research, he's come to do a PhD in the lab with us, <laughs> um, which is great, <laughs> um, but quite a surprise. He actually works for GCHQ, so it's not even his area. He was, he's, he's very dynamic. He got £36 million to build a new school, and he built a half-million um, science lab within it, which is an amazing facility, very unusual for schools. So he's come, he's come to that. Um, Science we have a continued relationship with them. So we started working with them through the Participate project. They engaged with us on the KT. They funded a PhD student with GWR. Um, they've since they found the, P, uh, the KT project really promising for them, and um, they've since funded another PhD student, particularly to look at visualizations of data. So we're looking at how we can improve our visualizations. So the, the graphs that we do in Google Earth. And uh, Sciencescape, for us, it's been really interesting because Sciencescape have been the first company uh, to join a school on a school site uh, working in the new STEM partnerships. And we'll have that researcher working within the school and the uh, industry partner for the next four years. So it's going to be a really nice research and knowledge exchange collaboration. In terms of longer-term impact, um, we have continued partnership in the district with Sciencescape, and they come to our lab meetings, and that partnership's gone really well. This isn't the only one, so I'm giving you an example here. We also have in the lab really close partnerships with other uh, industry partners, Microsoft Research, and the BBC are good examples of people we're working very closely with, established over a while. Um, we also have a more established network of teachers, uh, a larger network and more people knowing about what we're doing and engaging with us and coming to us as well, telling us about the work they're doing and asking us to go in and have a look at, um, evaluate it for them, which is rather nice. We'll be carrying out long-term evaluation of the impact of our workshops. So we've only got short-term impact, but a lot of this happens over two, three years. So we'll be carrying out some more evaluation of how many, if we got to 84 teachers, actually how many children, for example, um, then ended up using census within their whole methodologies of ours within their classroom. And we expect to, to gather further evidence that we can start moving into um, some sort of policy, so um, working more with the Department for Education and the Institute of Education we're going through to do that as well. I'm going to stop there because I must just be at my 12 minutes. <laughs> Thank, you very much. Thank you very much. Thanks. <laughs> Our final speaker this afternoon, and then you get your chance, so just one more speaker to go. Um, I'd like to introduce Professor Pete Walker, who is Professor of Innovative Construction Materials in the Department of Architecture and Civil Engineering, and is also Director of Research at the BRE Centre for Innovative Construction Materials. Uh, Pete's main research interests are in the use of low-carbon and renewable construction materials, hemp lime, straw bales, timber, and earthen constructions. And that's what he's going to be talking about today, how he's translated that research work into the construction industry.
Thank you for the introduction. Um, so I'll try and keep to the 12 minutes. Uh, just talk about a project that we're involved in with BRE. So as Jane said, I'm the director of the BRE Centre for Innovative Construction Materials. BRE is the building research establishment, which used to be a civil service organisation and now has privatised at the end of the 1990s and partners with a number of universities in research, and we're one of those. So we've been working together with them since 2006 on construction materials research. The purpose of the KTA project was to disseminate some of the research findings that we'd found in um, our ongoing work, particularly on renewable construction materials that states there. The picture shows the largest straw bale building in the UK, which is an auction house just near Stansted Airport. It's not just about straw bale construction. There's a number of other materials we've been using. But uh, famously, one of the previous presidents of the Royal Institute of British Architecture was in his presidential speech said that he would never design a building with a building material that hadn't been used for at least 30 years. So there's a lot of conservatism in trying to introduce innovation and new materials into the construction industry. Um, so just background. Construction is responsible, and buildings, not just construction, but the way we use buildings, heat buildings, cool buildings, light buildings, and working buildings, living buildings, contribute to around 50% of our CO2 emissions in the UK, and worldwide in developed countries it's a similar figure. Um, so lower carbon buildings, which the government and industry recognise, requires the use of new approaches and new materials as well. For example, a uh, well-known material that will use concrete, or cement in particular, contributes around 5 the industry rec- admits to about 5 some say 10% of all industrial CO2 emissions in the world. I think it's about 2 it's about one cubic metre of concrete per person on the planet is consumed every year, which, do a quick calculation whilst I sat there, is a, is a cube of about two kilometres by two kilometres by two kilometres, or easily enough material to fill in Bath Valley. So it's a large amount of material, and that's every year. Um, so we've been engaged, as I say, for a number of, a period of time, but uh, since 2006 with BRE, in looking at use of... Uh, lower impact materials, and one of those is plant-based materials. And as I said, from the uh, president of the Institute of British Architects, the industry is conservative in terms of adopting new materials, new technologies. There are many examples where new technologies have gone wrong, and uh, you know, it's the largest investment most individuals will make and most companies will make is in their infrastructure. So they want to be sure to get it right. And that's the importance of research. So I just want to talk about some of the research work we've been engaged in, which has led to the knowledge transfer. So, Bale House is a prefabricated straw bale building, which is about two, three hundred metres from where we're sat here. Uh, and uh, we've been engaged with a company behind this to develop the technology and to understand the science behind that technology so we can promote straw bale or, uh, to the construction industry. Uh, and we've been working on this area since about 2005. And if at the end of uh, this session, if you've got time, I'll be happy to show anybody around there before you go on to your next meetings or coffee. So the system is very simple, uh, which worries the construction industry in some ways, because uh, it's, it's, a, it's a timber frame panel, which is filled full of straw, which comes as a co-product of the, constru- of the agricultural industry, wheat straw mainly, and the bales are just filled in as insulation, provide very effective insulation, and it's filled with lime uh, render. And if you try and present this to organisations such as the NHBC who warranty, provide a warranty scheme for new construction, they say, well, where's the cavity? 
there is no cavity. Where's the vapor permeable membrane? There is no membrane. And so they get very nervous about technologies that they're unfamiliar with. So part of our role is to demonstrate that these work uh, and then to provide the evidence to convince other people to take it up. And slowly this technology is being taken up. There are a number of buildings going up, including a new building in Bath, Hayesfield School, are building a new science block in mod cell construction, which is being monitored by um, David Crellin. So, <laughs> so there you go. There. So this is the bail house. One of the other advantages of a prefabricated panelized approach is a very fast construction. So now that house can be built and made weathertight in one day once you've cast the slab on the ground. So you get a very fast construction, so that uh, also provides benefit in terms of cost. Uh, we've, as from the research point of view, we've been looking at the structural performance. This is our structures lab and looking at the uh, the low-hang performance, the racking load performance of the panels. We've, of course, everyone says, well, what about fire? It's going to burn down. So we've done fire testing of the panels, and this is a panel after it's subjected to two and a quarter hours of over 1,000 degrees centigrade, and it demonstrates remarkable fire resistance. And we've also looked at uh, fire degradation and the effect of the render, and also looked at the thermal imaging and where the heat losses are within the building fabric. And this shows that really the most of the heat losses are coming through the doors and the window frame and that the actual fabric of the straw provides a very uniform temperature. So it's providing a very good envelope to, to store that energy in the building. And then we've also been working with hemp lime composites. And this is a, a building, renewable house at BRE's Innovation Park in Watford. Uh, and it's a timber frame building which is insulated with hemp and lime. So hemp as a crop is a long history in this country manufacturing ropes, sails, textiles, and was reintroduced in the sort of 1990s uh, after it disappeared due to synthetic textiles, so I'm told, uh, and its associations with marijuana as a crop. As an industrial crop, it's grown for its fibres, which most of the UK hemp goes into the German car industry to make door panels, etc. Uh, but what's left over after you've harvested your hemp uh, is this, uh, and the fibres, is this wood chip material, which provides a very good bioaggregate, a lightweight bioaggregate for making insulating building materials. So if you mix it together with lime, then you can make and cast, uh, 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 construct a wall insulating material. So what we have here is another experimental building which was recently taken down at the university, the hemp pod. You've got a timber frame. Uh, I've got a laser here. Uh, no. uh, and uh, so there's timber studs, and then you're casting the hemp lime material, and that's the finished so that ran for experiments for uh, 18 months or so. And one of the just last pieces of sort of background science, one of the interesting things of these materials is their novel performance. The biomaterials also react to, to moisture as well as temperature change. So what we have here is a, a panel which is being subject to a different thermal regime. So we have a chamber behind it, and we can uh, get it into steady state conditions and then drop the temperature from 20 to zero on one side. So provide a thermal shock and see how long it takes for that heat flow to go through the wall. And with um, a mineralized hemp, I'm sorry, a mineralized uh, um, rock wool product, to use the uh, mineral wool product, it changed within about 24 hours. It reached steady state. With hemp lime, very quickly, it took over about 312 hours before it actually reached a steady state. And that's the influence of moisture in the performance of the material. So try, as a material that performs differently to what the construction industry is used to, 
it's very difficult to persuade them that because it doesn't actually stack up in the same way as this, that uh, it doesn't necessarily, if you use the same performance criteria that you'd use for mineral wool, it apparently on paper looks worse. So you've got to un get through a new form of thinking about these materials as well as just saying that they uh, work. So in terms of the KTA, then the project, and this was undertaken with Coleman from BRE, Andy Sutton, who's here presenting a, a series, one of his seminars, was to disseminate the research outcomes of uh, what in, to the southwest construction industry, engage with some of the key stakeholders. So, and the construction industry is very diverse, from very small SME contractors, designers, up to very large contractors and product manufacturers, and then various clients of uh, various sizes as well. So, engaging with key stakeholders, we seem to the numbering system seems to have failed here, and uh, prepare technical materials to support uptake. Um, so we did a, we surveyed stakeholders within the construction industries, their attitudes to innovation with new construction materials, and this is just a summary of some of the, the questions. But well, the main summary was, was that their attitudes to uh, using innovative low carbon materials, and um, a variety of responses. But the main concern is not, which was not surprising, is their concerns over cost. The construction industry is very much driven by cost. And even if you can demonstrate that in the longer term, the higher cost you might outlay initially will be paid back within 10, 20 years, they're still reluctant, depending, even if their owner-occupier of that building material is still concerned about the initial cost. And that's fair enough. So lots of the work we've been engaged in is trying to innovate the technologies to bring that cost down. Uh, as part of the dissemination process, then we've produced a series of information sheets uh, on different construction materials, of which I have... Examples here. If you want to pass these round, uh, right? Uh, and then also, um, which are available as PDFs, uh, free as part of the sort of project. We wanted to get them out there, uh, and these are sort of simple guides for the construction industry to have a look and uh, get, gain some easy access material. Uh, one, we did some case studies, and some of the information we fed into fed into Kevin McLeod's. Grand Design, the Triangle Project, which he used hemp lime in Swindon, and so we were involved and advised on that project as well. So this is the sort of last but one slide, which is summarised the table that's plucked out of the report and on what uh, the outcomes of the KTA were, the impact of the KTA. So, um, so we were working with BRE and BRE Wales. We were, as part of this project, we started. A new office, or they've started a new office, BRE Southwest. So they're operating in the southwest of the country. So engaging with companies, and they have picked up as a result of their engagement some contracts, which has also benefited us because we're now doing ongoing research. And there's an eco town in St. Austell in Cornwall, which has directly benefited in seeking to take these technologies up. We've had a number of um, seminar events and um, CPD events, of which we've got 400 delegates to. Measuring the impact of those can be longer term. The construction industry moves slowly, but we're seeing some uptake of these materials. As I mentioned, the Hastefield School, and there are other projects as well where we're seeing these technologies being uh, taken up by a variety of the construction industry stakeholders. So that uh, brings it to the end. Um, just to sort of thank the sponsors of KTA for doing this work, and for BRE, who provided Andy for a year. And that's another view of the renewable house at uh, the innovation park. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Pete. And um
Thank you to all, all the speakers who have done a brilliant job and kept their time and done a brilliant job of summarising because I asked them to give you a flavour of the science, the research underpinning what they were doing as well as the translation through the KTA and they've managed to do that brilliantly, I think, in the short space of time that they've had. Um, Sorry, Anna. <laughs> <laughs> she often does that, you know, silences me. Um, I would like to thank, first of all, Dr. Cook, who has been remarkable in the work that she's been doing to champion this activity. So I'm thanking her more generally, not just for today. Um, but I would like to thank Professor Scott Doctor, Stanton Braver, uh, Professor Walker and most particularly Professor Miller uh, for the work that they've done in producing this showcase for us today. And I know that there are other members of the audience who have been helpful behind the scenes. Um, it's amazing what they told us in a very tight time frame, don't you think? Mm. Didn't you learn a lot? Yeah. I certainly did. Um, and I think that they enabled us to understand the context and the value of the work that they've been doing in a way which is really quite unusual. So I, I will thank them for that. I did want to say two things, though, and some of this has come out in the discussion that we've just had. The knowledge transfer accounts and knowledge transfer more generally are a really significant thing for our university. And it's very important, particularly for our lay members of council, to understand that this is a change in the way in which we are thinking about the significance of research and the way in which we do research. Um, and it's, it's not going to go away, this change, because what we are dealing with here is achieving impact for our research. And more than just achieving impact, it's actually showing that impact so that people know that we're doing such great things and we're having such great effect. Now, that, I think, is really important intrinsically because we are really touching the lives of so many people and bringing about fantastic changes. But also, it's important for us in terms of our academic status and survival because these are the indicators which will feed in to the research excellence framework and the assessment of the value of the university's activity in the future. Increasingly, research councils and government departments are looking for universities to show that they are doing these things. And the success of this program in this university is indicative of the way in which we are engaging in that approach. We are really on top of it, and I hope that we've shown that, my colleagues have shown that today. Um, the research councils will be in future rewarding those universities that have shown that they can step up to this challenge. So research contracts, research grants in the future are going to be flowing to those places that are shown that they can do the sort of thing that we are now showing. And it's going to become increasingly obvious. Um, I say that, um, not surprisingly, as the chair of the uh, ESRC's research committee. So I know that they are going in that direction. Um, the other thing that came out from our discussion is this is a jolly complex business. And... You know, researchers who we thought of as fantastic researchers in the past, and they were good researchers, and they were good academics. What are they now? Actually, this is something much more complex. This is not only a change in their culture. 
This is a change. What was it you said? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> actually, as a psychologist, I have to correct him. He's, he's talking about that actually hysterical dissociation is made down But it is true. There are so many dimensions and facets that are required now of our senior academics. And we do need to learn to reward them appropriately for all aspects of what they're doing for the university. And we're certainly trying to move in that direction. So... I would thank the individuals who have presented themselves here today. I would really thank the KT champions across the university who have had such a dramatic impact in what we've been doing. And it really is very noticeable. The culture change has started to occur. We have to accelerate it. We have to have even greater impact in the future. So I would hope that you would join with me now in congratulating our speakers, but also congratulating those who have been managing this culture change. Available for those of us who are going on to the next meeting and anybody else who wants to join us. Wessex Restaurant, and in the short films will be there if you want to have a little look.